Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of The Hopeful Environmentalist, a podcast that brings on guest speakers to discuss pressing environmental issues in a way that gives you hope and resources to take action. I'm your host, Taylor, and today we bring on a guest speaker who is discussing a topic that is often overlooked in the environmental movement and it hits really close to home for me, so I'm super excited to share it with you all. Our guest speaker today is Marissa Dikowski, who is a disabled activist and attorney. She serves as the Disability Economic Justice Council at the National Partnership for Women and Families. Marissa's legal research on issues including disability rights, reproductive justice, and workers' rights have been featured in publications such as the National Lawyers Guild Review, the Journal of Gender, Social Policy, and the Law, and the UCLA Women's Law Journal. Marissa is a former leader of the National Disabled Law Students Association and in an organization and a founder of the National Disabled Legal Professionals Association. Marissa graduated magna cum laude from the American University Washington College of Law in 2019. Before we start the episode, I wanted to mention that this podcast will be available via a transcript, and the link will be on the description of this podcast and also available in our new transcript tab in our social media bios. I'm super excited to have Marissa on the podcast to discuss disability justice and how it intersects with environmental justice. I'd love to welcome our guest speaker, Marissa. Hi, Marissa. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. I'm so excited for this topic and to be speaking with you. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah. So if we want to start out, you know, can you just explain why disability justice is so crucial and what what disability justice means. Yeah, so disability justice is a framework that acknowledges the ways that our identities intersect to affect the ways that we experience marginalization. So it basically recognizes the ways that ableism, colonialism, capitalism, white supremacy, gender depression, all of it um, impact how others Um, view the value of our body minds. And uh, it also acknowledges that the law uh, is not always the best or most accessible way to achieve justice. There are other ways. The legal system itself um, is based in white supremacy and ableism, and it it recognizes that. Uh, Disability rights is a different framework. So while disability rights was really critical to starting our movement. It largely centers white disabled folks and it fails to prioritize intersectionality. Uh, And it's also a civil rights lens. So that means that it largely uses our legal system as a force for change. So that's kind of that difference. Uh, Disability justice moves beyond that. So it focuses more on our collective liberation Um, and cross-movement and cross-disability solidarity. Um, And there are also some other key differences um, between disability rights and disability justice. So for example, uh, the independent living movement uh, was established by disability rights leaders. And that movement focused on ensuring that folks could live independently in their communities, which obviously was a really important movement Uh, But disability justice turns that on its head a little bit and instead focuses on interdependence uh, and embraces the fact that no one is really independent. We all rely on one another. Uh, So it's super important. And disability justice itself is important because 
it views disabled folks as our whole selves and it centers the perspectives of the most marginalized and values what every disabled person contributes to the movement and brings to the table. And that's sort of how we can make lasting change that lifts everybody up. And I realized I used a whole lot of words there, um, <laughs> like ableism, disability. Um, I, I wanna make sure folks know how I'm defining those things. For ableism, I go by Talila T.L. Lewis's um, working definition of ableism, and T.L. defines that as a system of assigning value to people's bodies and minds based on societally constructed ideas of normalcy, productivity, desirability, intelligence, excellence, and fitness. These constructed ideas are deeply rooted in eugenics, anti-Blackness, misogyny, colonialism, imperialism, and capitalism. The systemic oppression leads to people and society determining people's value based on their culture, age, language, appearance, religion, birth, or living place, health, wellness, and or ability to satisfactorily reproduce, excel, and behave. You do not have to be disabled to experience ableism. And then there's also what is a disability, right? So that can be a little bit of a harder question to answer sometimes. Um, if you go by the Americans with Disabilities Act definition, it's pretty broad. That is defined as a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits uh, one or more major life activity. And a major life activity now includes uh, major bodily functions as well. So that list is pretty exhaustive. You may not even know someone has a disability when you meet them. Uh, so just thinking about a person in a wheelchair or someone who's deaf, that's not necessarily the entirety of the disabled community. And it's important to understand that many people who have a disability don't always necessarily identify as having a disability as well. And it's just important to respect everybody's identities and their journeys as disabled folks. Yeah, thank you for sharing those definitions. I know sometimes it's a lot of words and people are like, well, what does that mean? And I'm, th I'm very thankful for you to uh, define those and to spell those out for us. Um, I have a bunch of thoughts from what you said. I love everything you said. And I think it's so important when we talk about um, anything really, like the intersections that it has, like you said, cross movements. And that's so important. And, you know, when we're talking about this, you know, environmental justice, environmental racism, um, all, all the different aspects of environmental justice. So thank you again for bringing that up and making that known, because I think oftentimes it gets left out of conversations. And I read something recently that the EPA, which is the Environmental Protection Agency, in their definition of environmental justice, they don't even have disability in there. So when you talk about laws as well, not being you know, the only way to have justice is, is so true because laws aren't aren't protecting everybody and they weren't me meant to protect everybody. Yeah, it, it's true. And there are a lot of gaps in the law. Not only are there gaps, but legal services are not always accessible to folks. It's There's a lot of privilege involved in being able to access legal services. Um, and even when there are organizations that can provide free legal services, they're often limited in their resources 
or what they are able to provide assistance with. Um, so you're not always able to get representation, particularly with discrimination claims. Every state does have a protection and advocacy program. So like, for example, in DC, we have Disability Rights DC. And those are sort of federally designed to exist to protect the rights of disabled folks. But there's only so much capacity to go around. And so being able to access those legal services is a huge concern. Yeah, access and accessibility, I it's definitely a concern in a lot of different movements as well. So thank you for bringing that up as well. Um, so if we want to get into the next question, how does environmental justice and disability justice intersect? Yeah, so some of the big issues are weather patterns that affect our infrastructure and emergency preparedness. So when the electricity goes out, uh, disabled folks who rely on things like ventilators, electric wheelchairs, feeding tube pumps, other types of equipment might lose access. This was a really big issue for disabled folks when the winter storms in Texas happened in 2021. Obviously, that was super unexpected. Um, and increased numbers of hurricanes and other types of extreme weather uh, that cause power outages also obviously cause those types of things. And with more wildfires as well, uh, disabled folks might lose critical equipment, those same types of equipment, medications, other types of things that are important for their health. And then disabled folks are more likely to die uh, in disasters uh, than non-disabled folks. Uh, oftentimes, uh, response and evacuation plans are not fully accessible and don't keep disabled folks in mind. If you're interested in this kind of uh, work and information, Justice Shorter, um, who's an incredible activist, has done really great work in this area, um, working with FEMA, um, and is a natural disaster protection advisor uh, with the National Disability Rights Network. And then for folks with certain disabilities, weather changes can also be really dangerous. So, for example, folks with certain medical conditions might not be able to sweat properly. So that can be dangerous when temperatures increase. And then, of course, some of the things that colonizers and corporations are doing uh, to the environment can lead to disability. So pollution, mining, those types of things can cause significant health problems. And those issues disproportionately affect indigenous folks and people of color, just based on the fact that BIPOC folks are just more likely to live near high levels of pollution and resource mining. If you're interested in more on that, Jen Deerenwater is a really great resource uh, on the disparate um, impact on uh, disabled indigenous folks. So yeah, Jen is amazing. Disabled folks, uh, particularly disabled people of color um, and disabled women, are more likely to experience poverty. So that exacerbates a lot of these problems and uh, dr droughts um, and weather changes that may lead to food and water insecurity are therefore really particularly dangerous for disabled folks. Um, sexual exploitation, 
for food, sanitary towels, other resources. That's a huge concern, not only for women and girls generally, but especially for disabled women and girls. Um, and then disabled women uh, might lose income and experience disruptions and access to health and reproductive care. A lot of that is due to a couple of things, um, displacement due to weather changes, concerning weather patterns and the decline of certain types of jobs that they may be taking on, like jobs in agriculture, um, when food is a food insecurity is high. So lots of things that kind of play into that in losing income. And then I think one of the other big things uh, that we think about um, is the plastic straw issue. You know, while plastic straw bands do have some potential to make a small environmental difference, obviously we all know the biggest issue is not necessarily plastic straws. These bands do have a big impact on disabled folks. So plastic straws are sometimes the best and only way for disabled folks to drink fluids. And so replacing these straws with other types of straws doesn't necessarily do the trick. And then replacing them with organic alternatives um, can sometimes be problematic for folks with allergies. For example, when I go to restaurants, I now have to make sure their straws literally don't contain wheat or gluten because I can get pretty sick. And for others, it can cause anaphylactic shock, which is clearly much more uh, problematic and dangerous for them. Um, but there are a lot of issues with that. And, and those are some of the big things. Thank you for that. That was very, very informative. Um, a bunch of things you said I really resonated with. You know, when you talked about plastic straw bans, that was something that annoyed a lot of environmentalists as well, you know, pinning it again on the consumer and on people and pinning people against people instead of really looking at the oil co corporations who are actually causing climate change and instead blaming people who might need, like you said, might need the straws or, um, you know, plastic straws are the least of our concern in terms of climate change. Um, so thank you for bringing that up. And I, I think about single-use plastics in general. And whenever I have a health flare and I'm needing healthcare services, a lot of the things that are used are single-use plastic. And when I'm in the hospital or something, I get so frustrated. I'm like, oh, I'm causing this. And it's like, it's not me. You know, it's not people who need this. It's the people in power who have put these systems in place that allow allow this to continue to happen. And another thing you brought up was the pollution. And I was recently in Louisiana, uh, in New Orleans for a Power Shift Convergence, which is an environmental conference focused on environmental justice. And someone came in and was discussing, you know, how Cancer Valley is really focused on or really discriminatory because it's placed in Black communities and communities of color in specific. Uh, so that was something, you know, when you're talking about that, it like little light bulb, like this is something that happens more in more than one place. You know, it happens everywhere. It's happening in a lot of black communities and a lot of BIPOC communities. Um, so it's something that when we talk about environmentalism, it needs to be at the forefront. And I think when people a lot of, that's been thrown around a lot, you know, saying, oh, we need to put these communities at the forefront. But it's true. These are the communities who are facing these issues. These are the communities that are having the most being the most impacted. They need to be the ones who are controlling and 
kind of regulating how how their communities are being regulated currently. Um, I don't know if that made sense, but <laughs> it made sense in my head. So I hope that did. No, ab- absolutely. I think that that's one of the big things um, in, in a lot of movements, right? Just making sure the people who are being impacted the most are at the center um, and their voices are being centered and their perspectives are being centered. You know, environmental justice does need to center um, BIPOC folks who are being affected by these types of pollution that are causing things like cancer and other types of things that are disabilities. And then you you talked about the issue with sort of pitting individuals against each other versus blaming corporations um, and other folks who are really responsible. And I, I think that is something that is not exclusive to the environmental justice movement, right? I think the issue is that it feels so hard to actually hold corporations and colonizers who are doing this accountable. And so, you know, it feels like getting these little wins, quote unquote wins, right, um, seem possible, but really it's not, it's not, it's like a band-aid, right? It's not really getting at the heart of the issue. Um, but these corporations and colonizers hold so much power, um, it just feels impossible. But we're a lot stronger together. So that's why cross-movement uh, solidarity is so important just to make sure we're all working together and have power in numbers. Yeah. And, and on that topic, you know, talking about like systems almost, so systems change. And I follow someone on Instagram. Their name is Michaela Loach, and they have a new book called It's Not That Radical. I have not read it yet, but I've heard great reviews. Um, it just got published, I think, this week. So it's a really big book and I think she's doing really great with it um but if anyone wants to read it I really suggest you do I know I'm going to buy my copy and it's really talking about systems change and how you know we can't just fix the issues that are here by putting more colonization and more ideals like that we need to really change the system and put these communities in in power and these communities at the forefront of these conversations um so thank you for that so how can we make the environmental field and movement more accessible to those with disabilities and chronic health conditions? Because all these movements are super important and we need to make sure that everybody has um, the ability to be able to, to voice their, their thoughts, their opinions, and their ideas. Yeah. So my work is not really an environmental justice primarily or alone my work is in disability justice. So I'm not an expert on the environmental justice field, but like a lot of other fields, I think that disabled folks, um, myself included, just feel like we're not really heard. So for example, with the prioritizing of plastic straws um, and straw bans, I think there was the feeling that disabled people did not matter. And disability justice and environmental justice don't need to be at odds. In fact, they can't be and shouldn't be. If the environmental justice movement fails to consider the needs of disabled folks, it's not 
achieving environmental justice for everyone. And the same with disability justice, right? If it doesn't consider environmental justice, it's not really including all the issues that impact the lives of disabled folks. So we're coming back to that cross-movement solidarity being critical for our collective liberation. So, you know, that, and that's what we're doing at the National Partnership for Women and Families in my current role. So our team has been really intentional about bringing my perspective into the work that we do uh, through the Disability Economic Justice Council role. And our economic justice team focuses on the ways that policies affect uh, the economic health and security of women, uh, particularly women of color. And we do that with things like paid family leave, you know, not only for your own health issues, but as caregivers, uh, disabled folks are caregivers. And disabled folks are also more likely to request uh, leave to take care of chosen family. And environmental justice, you know, has to be a part of that lens because it's just something that disproportionately affects the economic health of women, especially multi-marginalized women. We talked about that potential for loss of income. Uh, losing equipment is also a huge economic concern. Electric wheelchairs, for example, are usually not fully covered by insurance. So, you know, really excited to be delving into this work at the partnership. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And for anyone listening, I will definitely put some links in there. So if you all want to share some links with me, that would be great. I would love people to be able to get involved and to use your resources um, as well, um, because that's important. That's another important thing. You know, I feel like there's all of this knowledge out there and making sure that it's like accessible for everybody and everybody has it in the right hands. That's that's really important. Um, and lastly, I just wanted to know how can listeners help with advancing disability justice? Yeah, so I think the most important thing is really centering the perspectives of disabled people and ensuring that not only there are seats at the table for disabled people, but uh, particularly multi-marginalized multi, uh, disabled people, but also that the table is built for them. Because if it's not, then it's not really inclusion. It's not really doing what you think it's trying to do. So there's no point. That's the issue with women too, um, and BIPOC folks too, um, in environmental justice and other movements, right? Um, even though they're most affected, they're less likely to be in charge. And also understanding that, you know, one disabled person doesn't necessarily represent all disabled people. Even with the same disability, we may have different experiences and access needs. I even have conflicting access needs at times. Basically, just the most important thing is understanding that the folks who are closest to the pain should always be closest to the power. I love that. That's That was really powerful. I just got chills when you said that. Um, and another thing you said, you know, having a spot at the table, I don't remember who said this, so I will find the quote after. Um, but they basically said, you know, we don't want to be put at the table. We want We need to build our own tables because the tables that... Um, people say, oh, you need to get a part of this table. It's like, well, that's the one where it's like oppressing people still. And so I, I think that's important um, and a great perspective to to know as well. Absolutely. And is there anything else that you would like to share before we wrap up this episode? Yeah, I, if folks are um, interested in um, getting involved in the partnerships work, you can feel free to follow us on Twitter at NP 
WF. And feel free to check out our website. I have a lot of amazing colleagues doing fantastic work that does intersect with some of these issues. We're talking about reproductive justice. We're talking about all these other types of things that touch on healthcare, that touch on economic justice. And we can't talk about these things without thinking about an environmental justice lens. There, there's just no way to do it. So thank you so much for having me on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on and sharing these amazing perspectives and these resources. They're really helpful. And I know they're helpful for me. And I know they'll be helpful for everyone else listening. So thank you so much. Thank you. In this episode, we discuss the importance of disability justice and the importance of cross-movement solidarity. I'll be linking all the resources discussed in this episode in the podcast description if you are interested in them. And that's a wrap on this episode of The Hopeful Environmentalist. Please remember to stay hopeful and create positive change.